Well, I invite you to turn over with me in your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Philippians. This morning, we'll be looking at the end of Philippians chapter 3. And over the course of the last few sermons, we've spent a lot of time in chapter 3, <clears throat> verses 1 to 16. We've been listening to Paul open up his heart about how he thought about the past, the present, and the future. And one of the questions I've been asking throughout the last few weeks is why Paul did that. Why did he write down such deeply personal thoughts in this letter? And he, he mentions at least two reasons in the text. The first one, if you want to look back, is in the first verse of chapter 3. Philippians 3, verse 1, he says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. So one of the reasons Paul says that he wrote this stuff down was to protect his friends from other people who would try to lead them astray from Jesus. You see that in verse 1, but especially in verse 2. <clears throat> Look at verse 2. That's where Paul says, Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Paul and we've talked about these things. But Paul was wanting to protect his friends. That's why he writes what he does in chapter 3. And the second reason he writes these things down is related to this. He lays out how he thinks specifically because he wants them to think like he thinks. And you see this especially down in verse 15 where Paul says, Let those of us who are mature think this way. Paul knows that if, if they will think like he thinks, they'll be safe. Because he doesn't want them to be deceived or taken in by other people who put a lot of value on things that really don't matter or who put confidence in things that cannot deliver them or who glory in things other than Jesus. And so he lays out how he thinks so that they will embrace that way of thinking, and that will keep them safe from those who would want to harm them. Okay, now this leads right into today's text. Look at verse 17 of chapter 3. <clears throat> Brothers, join in imitating me, <clears throat> and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I've often told you <clears throat> and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. And can you see how those verses flow right out of that last text? But notice that this time, Paul's not aimed just at how we think. He begins to talk more about how we walk or how we live. He says, join together in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk like we walk. Now, at this point, I want to I step back and I want to think for a minute about how this call to follow the right examples fits into the rest of the letter. Because I think it's really easy to miss this <clears throat> in the letter, even though this is a big theme throughout the whole letter. Okay, throughout the letter, 
Paul has put forward one good example after another. <clears throat> In fact, by my count, there have been four good examples that Paul has already put forward in the letter. Can you think of who they are? Who are the four good examples that he has put forward in the letter so far? The first one was the most important one. Who is that? Jesus, right? That was back in the first part of chapter 2. That's where Paul says, and maybe the most famous text in Philippians, have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then what does he do? He goes into detail about the humility, the selflessness, and the obedience of Jesus. But Jesus is not the only example that Paul puts forward in this letter. Who are the other three? The second and third are the two guys that Paul highlights at the end of chapter 2. Do you remember them? Timothy and Epaphroditus. Paul knew that both, Paul knew both those guys really well, and he knew they would both come back to Philippi before Paul would ever be able to make it back. And so he highlights them and puts them forward as an example for the church. Do you remember what he says about these guys? I mean, these guys embodied the mind of Christ. What does he say about Timothy? This is in chapter 2. He says, everybody around me is looking out for their own interest, but not Timothy. You know Timothy. You know his proven worth, and I have no one like him who will be so genuinely concerned for your welfare. And then he goes on and talks about Epaphroditus a few verses later. And what does he say about him? He says, this guy, You know him. He's one of your guys. He served Jesus to the point of death. So welcome him and honor people like him. And then who's the fourth example in Philippians that Paul puts forward? That is Paul himself. That's what the last 16 verses has been about. He's been putting himself forward as an example of how to think. And it all leads into this text, verse 17 where he challenges us to find the right examples and to follow them. Verse 17, he says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on people that walk like I do. Now, that's the main call in this this paragraph. Join in imitating me. Now, I want to I stop and I want to think about the idea of imitation. Because I, I think we have a very different usage of imitation. Okay? Like we, de- we generally don't think of it as a, as a good thing to imitate someone else. Okay? Uh, so why is that? Okay, from, from one angle, I was thinking about America okay, in particular. Okay, we tend to emphasize our individuality. Okay? Like our slogans, you know. Be your own person. There's only one of you on this planet, so be yourself. Don't try to be like anyone else. Just be who you really are. You know, all of this kind of stuff. Okay? Imitation, if you think about it, does not fit really well with that ethic. Okay? 
But from another angle, imitation, I think this is more often, is often connected to making jokes about people. For example, if you walked into a room and someone was imitating you, would you be happy about that? When we think of imitation, it's often connected to mocking someone, making a joke. And to be sure, a lot of this is good-hearted. It's not <coughs> like being mean. You know, perhaps there's a, a particular way someone dresses. And so someone else imitates them. We, we see that a lot with celebrities, for example. But more often, we have fun imitating people that we love, people that we, we know. You know. Perhaps there's some specific way that they talk, kind of jokes they always make, some way that they walk, some hand gestures they have when they speak. It's fun to imitate them. My kids do this with me, especially about how I speak. Okay. Okay. And comedians are also often really good at imitating other people. That, that's kind of the context that I can think of with, with imitation primarily. <clears throat> but that's not at all what Paul has in mind when he calls his friends to imitate him. Okay? Like he's not telling them to dress like he dresses. I do not know how Paul dressed, but he's not telling them to do that. I, I don't know if Paul had a beard. I was thinking about that. Do you picture Paul with a beard? I don't, I don't know. But if he had one, he's not telling other people, grow one. Or if he didn't have one, he's not telling them, shave it off. You know? He's not telling them to change jobs and become a tent maker like he was. He, he, that is not what's in his mind. When he's saying, brothers and sisters, imitate me. Okay, but what does he have in mind? Okay, let's suppose, even though we don't, wouldn't typically say this, let's suppose you told someone else, I want you to imitate me. What would you have in mind? Like Paul wanted them to imitate what about himself? Now, I would say he wanted them to imitate how he thought about, about what? Suffering, life and death, ambition. He wanted them to imitate how he thought about those things. He wanted them to imitate how he loved. How he loved what? How he loved Jesus, the gospel, the church. He wanted them to imitate how he longed for certain things. Like what? <clears throat> like to, to know Jesus? How he longed for the resurrection of the dead. He wanted them to imitate that. Now, how do I know that that's the kind of stuff he wanted them to imitate? Because that's what he spent the whole letter writing on, about. And then he says this. Brothers, join in imitating me. Now, to, to just clarify a couple things. Because I think if, if I got up here and I said, I want all of you to imitate me. Okay, I'm not saying it would be a terrible thing for me to say that, but it would come across, I think, the wrong way <laughs> okay, for, for, us, for me to say that. So, so I want to think about this in, with Paul. Okay? Just clarify a couple things. Okay? Remember, Paul does not think he's all that. Okay? He does not think he's arrived or that he's already perfect. Because we might assume that if Paul's calling them to imitate himself, that must be a sign of pride, Paul must think he's perfect or something. 
And that is just not the case. How do we know that? Well, like a couple verses earlier, he said two times, I have not arrived. Right? He just said that in the last paragraph. Paul knew and admitted openly that he was not perfect. And yet, he did know that he truly loved Jesus and that he had learned a lot in his life about suffering well, about what really matters in this life. And so he says to his friends, because he loves them, join in imitating these things. I've picked up some things. I want you to imitate them. Okay, second, remember that Paul himself was also seeking to imitate someone else. Who? That would be Jesus, right? So even, even in Philippians, but especially when you read Paul's letters as a whole, Paul never puts himself forward as the ultimate standard. He did not pretend to be the ultimate standard. Jesus is the only perfect man, the only one who had it all together. And Paul was very open about the fact that his whole life was aimed at knowing Jesus and imitating Jesus. He wanted to be made like him in every way, even in his death. That's what he says in the previous verse. My ambition is that I may know him and become like him. That's why it's not surprising that in other texts where Paul uses this language, he will say things like, imitate me as I imitate Jesus. Okay. And yet, <clears throat> in this text here in Philippians, Paul says, imitate me. In other words, Paul does not say, brothers and sisters, let's all imitate Jesus. Though he could have said that, and he does say something like that in chapter 2, he is saying something different here. He could have said that, but instead he says, brothers and sisters, join together in imitating me. Now, what do we learn from that? What does that communicate? It shows us the importance Paul placed on having good examples in your life that you can look at and see with your own eyes and get to know and follow them. Now, certainly, Jesus is the only perfect example we have. And I, and I am thankful that we can get to know Jesus and how he lived in the Gospels. When you read the Gospels, we do get to watch Jesus. In fact, in my view, that's one of the reasons the Gospels were written down, was so that we could watch our Lord and see him and get to know him. And we praise God for that. But that does not undermine how important it is for you to have people in your own life that you can watch and learn from and follow. And to see just how important that is, look at verse 17 again. He says, brothers and sisters, join together in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. You see that? Paul does not say, just look at me. He adds, 
and keep your eyes on people who live like I do, who walk like I walk. Now, why would he say that? Where is Paul when he writes this? Remember, he, he's like a thousand miles away in Rome. He's under house arrest. He's headed to a trial that could lead to his execution. Now, he hopes that he'll be able to see them again in Philippi. But even if they get to see each other again, he knows he's not going to be around forever. And so what does he tell them they need to do? They need to find examples right where they are of people who walk like he walks to mark them out and to follow them, to get their eyes on those people and to follow them. One of God's greatest gifts to us as his people is the gift of having godly examples around you. Now, some of us had this in our own homes. Some of us didn't. Either way, to all the current parents, this is part of our role. It is to set an example for our kids to follow about what it looks like to love and follow Jesus. And so I would challenge the kids, watch your parents. Especially if your parents love Jesus, you watch them and you follow them. Don't try to be against them or different. Follow them and thank God for them. Interestingly, I was thinking about the requirements for elders. This is a huge requirement in the New Testament for elders that they be examples for the flock to follow. This is one of the reasons there's so much emphasis in the New Testament placed on the character of those who want to be elders. But we have many more examples to follow than just parents or pastors. Thinking about our church, God has gifted us in this church with many men who love Jesus. God has gifted us with women who love God and love their sisters. God has gifted us with great examples, some of the best I've ever seen, of people who live well in singleness for God's glory. God has gifted us with examples of faithful marriages There have been examples I've seen in our church of how to suffer well that I have learned from. God has gifted us with examples of hospitality, evangelism, and many more. These are priceless gifts to us. Are we aware of this? Do we take advantage of these gifts? Like, Like to make it more specific. Who are the people you're watching? If I said, who are the people you're trying to imitate? Because you see in them Jesus. Paul's thinking that we've been talking about. You see it in them. Who are the people that you've marked out? 
And like, I want to be like them because they're like Jesus. At some point in the next couple of months, I may come back uh, to this theme of imitation and just kind of think of it more as Paul writes about this in many of his letters. But for today, I, I just hope on this point, God is opening our eyes to the value of godly examples and to the responsibility we have to find them, to get to know them, to follow them as they follow Jesus. <clears throat> now, I want to step back and I want to ask a question about this. Okay. Why is Paul so concerned about this? Like, why does he make such a big deal about this in the letter? To answer that, you have to read the next verses. Look at verse 17 again, and then we're going to read the next two verses and see if you can follow it. Like, why is this such a big thing in his heart? It says, brothers, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I've often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Okay, why is this so important to have good models to follow and to keep your eyes on them? Could you follow Paul's answer? I've looked at this text a lot. Could, could you follow the answer in verses 18 and 19? He says, it's because there are many people who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ, who've put their minds on the wrong things, and whose lives will one day end in destruction. And by the way, did you notice that Paul takes no joy in that? He grieves over the people he's thinking about when he says that. He says, I've often told you about them, and now I'm telling you about them with tears. But still, can you follow the logic? <clears throat> Imitate me, watch people who live like I do, because there's many people who are walking as enemies of the cross. Like, what's, what's the connection between the two? I, I think there are two good options for how to explain this. Okay, one... Paul wants his friends to follow him simply because he knows there are many other examples out there who are really bad. And they could follow them instead. Okay, that could be as simple as it is. For example, Paul just mentioned in chapter 3 the dogs. Who were they? Those were people who did not glory in Jesus. They put confidence in the flesh and marks on their bodies. And those were the kind of people who went, out, went around saying, follow me. And so maybe Paul's just saying, look, follow me and people who live like I do because I know there's a lot of people out there who want your attention. And that will lead you down a wrong path. You know, maybe, that's, maybe that's it. That's how most people read the text, and that makes a lot of sense. Though I do think there's another possibility in, of how to read it, and Paul wants his friends to follow him because he's thinking of many sad stories of his former friends who began to follow the wrong people and who ended up turning from Jesus and are now on the road to destruction. In other words, the enemies of the cross of Christ in that, if, if you take it that way, are not the false teachers themselves. They're some of Paul's former friends 
who ended up becoming victims of the false teaching. They're friends that used to serve Christ with Paul, but who ended up turning from Christ. And that's why when he writes about them, he weeps over them. It's because these are former people, former friends, who used to love Christ and his cross, but who got behind the wrong people, who fell prey to the wrong leaders. And today, when he thinks about them, he cries about them because they're walking as enemies of the cross. And I lean toward reading it that way, but the difference is minor. And you can take wisdom from either way. We, have to, we need to find and follow the right people because there's many other people that want our attention and because I, I know and you know many stories of friends who followed the wrong examples and ended up falling away from the Lord they had professed to love. Perhaps you can think of friends that fit that description. Friends you used to worship Jesus with shoulder to shoulder. Friends you would have marched out to battle with, but who today have no love for Jesus? Who glory in things they would have thought were shameful before? Who seek satisfaction in anything but Jesus? And who, if you talk to them today, their minds are entirely set on this earth. How does that happen? How did it happen? There are lots of ways that can happen. But one of the main ways is that people, we like, okay, we all have a tendency to want to follow somebody, to imitate people. And one of the ways that this happens is people put their eyes on the wrong models. They begin to follow the wrong examples, and in the end, they become just like the people they follow. They end up on the road to destruction with their minds consumed by earthly things. And and I think this is what's on Paul's heart when he's writing it, and it's what he never wants to happen to his dear friends in Philippi that he's invested in for 12 years. But this does not have to be our story, and Paul did not believe that this would be his friend's story either. He is warning them in the text. He's challenging them. But he's not worried about them. Because look at what he says. He has great hope for them. Look at verse 20. He does not think this is going to happen to them. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And that's in direct contrast with verse 19. Their end is destruction, but ours isn't. It's salvation. Their minds are set on earthly things. Our citizenship is in heaven. And as we've talked about throughout the series, citizenship in Philippi was incredibly important. It was a Roman colony. They knew the value of Roman citizenship. Some of the people in the church would have been Roman citizens. All of them wish they were. But Paul points them all to a far better citizenship that they all possess. Our citizenship is is in heaven. Citizenship in the U.S. is prized today as well. There are countless people trying to get into our country. But it is nothing 
compared to this. Our citizenship is in heaven. We've been granted citizenship in a better place than this, a better land, a better city, under the rule of a better Lord. And we're just waiting for the day when our Savior, the Lord Jesus, comes from heaven. And when he comes to us, what will he do for us? What did it say in the text? He will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. This is our hope. It's the hope of every citizen of heaven. It's the hope of resurrection and glorification. And Jesus has the power to do it. We've already seen it in the power of his resurrection. Jesus not only died for our sins, he conquered death, he rose, he has the power, as Paul says, to subject all things to himself. And he not only has the power to do it, he has the will and determination to do it. He will not only transform our bodies, he will transform the whole land. Jesus will make you what you ought to be, and he will make this world what it ought to be. He will make all things new. The hope of the Christian, and we need to get this clear in our minds, because I think sometimes even when I'm talking with children, we can kind of get confused about what our hope is, and it doesn't sound that great if it's to be disembodied and floating around in the space somewhere. The hope of the Christian is not to be freed from the body. The hope of the Christian is to get a new and better body. Jesus will make that hope come true. The hope of the Christian is not to be away from this earth forever, floating around somewhere. Our hope is set on the new heavens and the new earth, a land, a land where righteousness dwells and sin does not. Our hope is to live together, not in isolation, but together with Jesus in better bodies, in the joy and beauty of the new creation. And Jesus is going to make that hope come true. We have already been granted full citizenship there. We're just waiting for the return of the king. Now, that hope can give you the power to stand firm and to not fall away. And that is the aim in the text. Because that's what he closes with. Philippians 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in this way, in the Lord, my beloved. The aim of the text and of all of chapter 3 is that call. So, stand firm in the Lord. And so as we close, I just want to pull together the threads of the text. If, if Paul's aim is that we would all stand firm and not fall away, what's the path to that? Just a review from this text. Find the right examples. Get to know them. Keep your eyes on them. Follow them. Two. Remind yourself each day where your citizenship lies. Our citizenship is not here. Three, remember your king is coming to make you new and to make all things new. It's all from the positive. You can think of the same things from the negative and probably learn something from that. What's the path to falling away? One, find the wrong examples and put your eyes on them. 
or, or just ignore this entire call to imitation and just think, I'll just be my own person. And I'll ignore this because I'm fine on my own. Okay. Two, live like your most important citizenship is here. You do that. You keep living like this is where you belong and you are in danger. Three, forget that your king is coming. Live as if this is all there is. Set your mind on earthly things and you are in great danger. That is a sad but well-traveled path. But it does not need to be our path. We have a Savior who is mighty to save, who is more committed to you finishing the race than you are. We have hope in Christ that is real, stable, that will never be shaken. And as we wait for Christ, we know Christ has not left us alone. Christ has given us his spirit, and he has given us each other. So may God help us to stand firm in the Lord and never fall away. Let's pray. Lord, would you take this great challenge from your word and help us to be more thankful for the church and all the wonderful people you've put around us who love you that we can look at and know, receive encouragement from, and even follow as they follow Jesus. Thank you that we have a hope that is real and that can never be shaken. And we thank you most of all Father, we thank you for Jesus, who is not only our only perfect example, but who is our Lord and Savior, who is coming again to make us new. Grant us great hope. Help us not to forget. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.